You are about to listen to Where Your Treasure Is, the podcast where faith and finance meet. Please note that the views expressed are our own and in no way represent any form of financial advice. And remember, investments can go down as well as up. Happy listening. We hear that introduction every week, Simon, and in no way represents any form of financial advice. And remember, investments can go down as well as up. Why does that have to be there? It's getting a little bit repetitive, to be honest. I know, Bex. The problem is that when it comes to financial advice, there's a lot of people out there offering different information and guidance and advice. Now, technically, what we are doing on this podcast is giving information and guidance. As such, if listeners act on what we say, then they are responsible for their own actions. When clients engage with me in my professional capacity, they're asking me for advice based upon their own goals and objectives and circumstances. And when I give that advice, I become responsible for it. And that's a big responsibility to have on your shoulders. I guess people don't mind when you make them more money, but they must get pretty annoyed when they follow your advice and then they find out that they've lost money. That is certainly the experience of many advisors, but only if they have set the wrong expectations in their clients' minds. If I were to promise to make you money and then fail, you would be justifiably annoyed. If I promise to lose you money, well then, you're unlikely to choose me to be your advisor. The challenge is to wisely and honestly manage the expectations of those who are going to invest. Well, today's podcast is all about how to make money, make money. I suppose that's what investing actually is. How do you go about managing people's expectations about making money? Well, let's start with a definition of an investment. An investment is something that gives you an expected return. But going by the blank look on your face, I think we might need an example to help out. Great. I feel like I can get my teeth into an example. Right. I want you to keep in mind that particular phrase of expected return. A return is when something goes up in value. That's a capital gain or when you receive an income from it. Expected return, capital gain, income. Got it. Okay. Example number one. Bex, you decide to buy a car. Now, is that an investment? Do you expect it to go up in value or... Do you expect it to earn you an income? No, on both counts. I expect that it'll go down in value and I expect it'll cost me money, not make me money. I suppose if I bought a rare or antique car, it might go up in value, but it's not going to give me an income. Excellent. You've hit on a critical point there. Most cars go down in value due to depreciation, so they're not investments. Classic cars might go up in value, But you have no real way of knowing that they will. So buying one is more of a speculation than a true investment. Right, let's follow through that train of thought with example number two. Um, This time we're going up the scale. You're going to buy a house. So Bex, is a house an investment? Okay, so this time I expect it'll go up in value over time. Although I accept that it might not always go up but it still isn't going to give me an income, so I'm not sure. Is a house an investment? 
Well, it might be, depending on how you intend to use it. If you're buying a house to live in, then no, it's not an investment, it's a home. But you still might expect it to go up in value over time. Why might that be the case? Why do you expect that? Well, my parents told me that when they bought their first house, it cost around £20,000. But that same property today might cost £250,000. It really has gone up in value. And in the UK, historically, house prices have risen over the long term. But just that fact doesn't make a house an investment. To make it an investment, you actually also wanted to give you an income. Now, how might you go about doing that? I suppose you could rent it out. Yeah. If you buy a house to rent out, then you expect it to both earn an income, which is the rent, and also for it to go up in value. That is a perfect example of an investment. Now, I'm going to go through some other types of places that you could put your money and highlight those that are investments and those which are not. Let's start with the bank. You don't expect your money to grow in value when it's in the bank. But you do, usually, expect it to earn some interest. That's a bit like the rent on your house. So you have the income bit, but not the capital growth bit. A bank account would therefore be defined more as savings rather than investing. What about buying shares? Now that's when you buy a small part of a company. You own a share of that company. And for being an owner of the company, you are entitled to a share of any profits the company makes. That's your income, called a dividend. And also, over time, we expect, on average, shares to go up in value, but not all the time. So shares do count as an investment, capital growth and income. Let's do one more. What about gold? Now, when you buy gold, you don't get paid rent for owning it. You don't get interest for owning it. And you don't receive a dividend because gold doesn't go out and make a profit anywhere. Gold might go up in price, but it does so primarily when demand for it goes up. And unless you have a crystal ball and can predict the future, no one knows when gold will go up in value in the future. So gold also is not an investment. It's another kind of speculation. Now, there are lots of different investments out there to choose from. But the first step is to identify which are really investments and which are mainly speculation, those that don't have an expected return. You've used that phrase again, expected return. What does it mean and why is it so important? So investing is not, as some people consider it, pure chance, speculation, or even worse, it's not gambling. At least it shouldn't be. Gambling is primarily based on chance. Speculation is primarily based on hope. But investing is primarily based on evidence. And it's that evidence that leads us to the concept of expected returns. We can use the information and the evidence and the analysis leading from it to draw certain conclusions about what level of return Different investments can be expected, not just hoped, expected to deliver in the future. So we're going to learn about how to invest. Can you start with telling us why we need to invest? If you remember, 
two episodes ago, we considered pensions. And I explained that most people will end up with at least one and sometimes several pensions during their lives. These then provide an income to live off in retirement. If you're a member of a final salary or career average pension scheme, then you don't have to worry about investing the money in the pension. Your employer will be doing that. And they are responsible for ensuring there's enough money to pay you what you were due in retirement. The same goes for the state pension. Well, actually, there's no pot of money behind pensions like the state pension, or even the teachers, or NHS, or emergency services pension scheme. These pensions are paid out of government tax revenue every year. But if you have a personal pension, or a defined contribution company pension scheme, then you will have to decide how that money is invested. Likewise, if you have money left over after you've covered all your regular monthly expenses and have set aside money for planned expenses over the next couple of years, then you too should be considering investing what's left. And why is that? Why can't we just leave the money in the bank? The main reason is inflation. Now, inflation is something we're hearing lots about at the moment and experiencing lots of through the cost of living crisis. But inflation has always and will always be an issue to a greater or lesser extent. Inflation basically means that costs go up over time. For example, when I started to drive, that's back in 1995, I remember a litre of petrol cost about 50p. It's a lot more than that now. Prices have hit £1.90 a litre in recent months briefly. That's an increase of almost 300% in 25 years. That's about 5.5% per year of inflation price rises on average. Now, what the government does is it tracks the price of about 700 different goods and services that we buy each month to monitor how much they cost and how much that cost is going up. And they average it all out and that gives us inflation. When inflation is stated to be, let's say, 5%, it means that those items cost, on average, 5% more than they did a year ago. Now, over the long term, and I'm talking decades here, inflation in the UK has averaged about 3% per year. Now, in July 2022, that's the latest month that we have figures for, inflation reached 10.1%. That's the highest figure since 1982. And given that I was a little boy in 1982, I've never had to practically deal with inflation levels like they are today. And why is inflation, whether high or low, such a big motivator to invest money? If you don't invest money, then in reality it stays in the bank, or you gamble it, I suppose. The only return you're going to get from money in the bank is interest. Now, at the moment, the best interest rate on an instant access bank account is less than 2%. But let's imagine a year ago, you had put £100 in the bank. It might be worth £102 now because of that interest you've received. But something that cost £100 a year ago now costs £110 because of inflation, that 10% inflation rate. So in effect, you've lost out on £8 because of inflation your £102 can't buy something worth £110. Now, when you invest money, and assuming you're doing this for the long term, 
you're more likely, though not guaranteed, to beat inflation over the long term. For example, in the UK, since I was born, that's in 1977, the UK stock market has beaten inflation by more than 7% per year on average. That's inflation plus 7%. Now, at this point, I'm going to remind you of the power of compound interest. If my parents had invested £100 for me when I was born, and that was a decent amount of money back then, and they had taken advantage of that 7% per year above inflation growth rate in the stock market, they'd have saved up for me not just £100 plus 45 years of £7 interest growth. That would be £315, which is quite decent. £315, not bad. But if they'd left that money in there for 45 years and allowed it to grow, and then the gain in year one would have made more money in year two, and even more in year three, over the same 45 years at 7% average growth rate, I wouldn't just have £315 of gain, I would have £2,000 of gain, and the original £100 as well, and that's £2,000 above inflation. Well, my parents also bought their first home for not much more than £2,000. And now I remember why you get so excited about compound interest. So if I'm thinking about setting aside money, which is going to be invested for the long term, and I'm thinking about my pension now, I don't just want it to keep its value. I want it to grow so that it at least keeps up with the cost of living going up. What £100 can buy now will cost a lot more than £100 when I come to retire. Correct. And thinking long term is the key issue here. Over the past 45 years, the UK stock market has gone up and down and up and down many times every day, every week, every month, every year. The best year was actually in 1977 when it went up by 48.8% in one year. But the worst year was in 2008 when it went down by 29% in one year. And this is where we have to be very careful not to let investing become speculation. I can tell you what inflation has been in the past. And I can tell you what the stock market has done in the past, whether in the UK or in any other part of the world. But neither I nor anybody else, no matter what they tell you, can predict what it's going to do next month, next year, or certainly not in 20 years. Now we can show using almost 100 years worth of data, that in all of the places that you could put your money for the long term, the stock market is the one that is most likely to give you returns above inflation over the long term. But it is also the one that is most likely to lose you money in the short term. The long term upside comes with a short term risk. But surely if the stock market is going up and down all the time, we can't call it investing. How do you know what to invest in so that you can have a real expected return and not just a hope of some gain in the future? The solution to that question is not to try and outguess the market, but let the market work for you. 
Now, lots of investors and financial advisors and stockbrokers and even fund managers... More about them in the next episode. They think that they can somehow identify what to invest in to get the best return. That might mean choosing a particular company to buy shares in or a particular industry. I remember back to the dot-com bubble at the turn of the millennium or even investing in a particular country. And their hope is that their bit of the stock market that they choose will do better than all the rest. And of course, there will always be winners. But there are always more losers than winners. Now, how can that be the case? Imagine you line up all of the investments based upon how well they've done over the past year. And at one end of the line, you have all those amazing investments that did incredibly well. And then you have all those ones that did terribly at the other end. Most of them will fall pretty near the middle and give you about the average return for the year. Some years, the average will be high and some years it will be low. But over time, the average ends up, in the UK anyway, being about 7% per year. So half of the investments should be and would be above that 7% average middle mark and half of them would be below the 7% average middle. But here's the critical point. It costs money to invest money. You have to pay the people who help you do it. That might mean you're paying trading fees on a website to buy or sell investments for you. More often, certainly in pensions, for example, it means paying a fund manager to trade lots of different shares for you during the year. And after you apply those management and trading costs, the average return the investor gets drops maybe from 7% per year on average down to less than 6% per year on average. Now suddenly, certainly over time, more than 75% of all the investments are giving less than 7% return after charges. In other words, you'd have done better getting the average return of the market if you could do so at no cost. But what can we do with that knowledge? If we still have to invest our money somehow, and there are so many different investment choices to pick from, how do we pick the ones that are going to win? I'm afraid to say, Bex, you can't. No one anywhere ever has yet come up with a system to pick next year's winner. So don't try and do it. If you want the best chance of getting a good return, which in this case means as being close to that average of 7% as possible, that would be a good return. You would beat 75% of other investors. Then there are a few key steps. Number one. Pick an investment that gives you access to as much of the stock market as possible. Now, in the UK, for example, there are over 3,000 different companies that you can buy shares in. So look for an index fund, sometimes called a tracker fund, that buys as many of these as possible. Now, not just something like the FTSE 100, which is the most famous index in the UK. That only buys the shares of the 100 largest companies in the UK. Now, the FTSE All Share, which is better, includes close to 700 companies, but it doesn't buy all 3,000, even though it's called the All Share. A fund like this means you haven't got to buy hundreds of individual shares yourself. 
you buy the fund and the manager buys the shares for you automatically. So that's point one. Point number two, invest in index funds like that for as many countries as possible. So perhaps an all-world index or an index for Europe and one for America and even one for the emerging markets. They all form part of the world stock market and they all need to be in your investment portfolio if you want the best chance of getting as close to that 7% long-term average as possible. Number three, pick as low cost a fund as possible. If you have a fund that costs you 1% per year, then in our example, your long-term average is going to be 7% less that 1% of cost, so 6%. But if a fund only costs half percent or even 0.2%, then you are keeping much more of the money every year, which will compound over time into a much bigger amount. Expensive funds do not guarantee higher returns. They just guarantee higher charges, which makes it harder for them to perform well. And point four for now, something called asset allocation. You don't need to put all your money into the stock market. Whilst historically it's given the highest long-term returns, it's also very volatile. That means it goes up and down a lot. If you're investing money for a shorter period, say five to 10 years, then you should perhaps move more of your money into lower risk investments, such as gilts and bonds. Now, these are words that mean loans, loans to governments and loans to companies. But again, you can use a widely spread, low cost index fund to do this. Now, you should expect lower returns because you're taking less risk when you lend money to companies rather than buy shares in them. But you also get less volatility, which means less chance of losing money in the short term. Now, there are some other ways to target bits of the stock market which have, historically, delivered slightly higher returns over the long term. Small companies, on average, beat large companies. Low-value companies outperform high-value companies. And high-profit companies outperform low-profit companies. But talking about those is a whole other episode for one day in the future. So stick to highly diversified, low-cost, global index funds, and you should do well. I get the impression that we'll come back to this time and time again. Invest in highly diversified, low-cost index funds for the best long-term outcomes. Avoid expensive funds that try to predict the future and make the most of pensions and ISAs. Job done. Great summary, Bex. Well, if that has whetted your appetite and you want to know more about investment strategy, how to make money, make money, then feel free to get in touch by emailing where your treasure is at freerangepodcasting.co.uk or at where your treasure is podcast on Instagram. Next week, uh, what's happening next week? Uh, well, for us, Bex, it's the holidays. Woohoo! In fact, because we are super organised and recording our podcast in advance, I am already on holiday right now. In fact, I should be at Alton Towers with my kids, enjoying some uh, ups and downs. Talk about volatility. <laughs> Indeed. So we're going to take a break for a couple of weeks, and then we'll be back with two bonus episodes, including one on the cost of living crisis, which will be our first ever 
guest episode. And then after that, we will resume our current seasons with Life Stage 5 Career Progression. Well, I am looking forward to having a special guest and I hope you're having a lovely holiday, Simon. We'll catch up, record some more and be back on the airwaves in a few weeks' time. We hope you'll join us then. Bye. Goodbye. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you where you and your podcast want to go. Thank you.